2 John, if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 1025. And again, 2 John on page 1025. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jamie. So uh, one of the great cinematic contributions of our time is definitely The Princess Bride. If you're with me, can you raise a hand? All right, good. Glad we're together in this. What is not to love? You've got Andre the Giant. You have got the Six-Fingered Man. You've got Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. But then there's Vizzini. You guys remember Vizzini? Vizzini has a favorite word. Does anybody remember what Vizzini's favorite word was? Inconceivable. That's right. So Andre, Inigo, and Vizzini are at the top of this cliff, if you can picture this uh, from the movie in your mind. And they're looking to see if the masked man has fallen to his death. And Vizzini says, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. And Inigo Montoya responds, he says, you keep using that word. I do not think you know what that word means. Uh, I think we as a society have reached that point with the word truth. I do not think we know what that word, I don't, I do not think, uh, what, let me just read the actual line. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Uh, the word truth. Truth today is something only defined by a person's internal drive to happiness or contentment. God can't tell me who I am. You can't tell me who I am. Only I can tell me who I am and what is best for me. So many today find their meaning by giving expression to their own feelings and desires, whether or not they conform to the truth, capital T, truth. So if truth is merely personal, if truth is merely psychological and a means for my happiness, then what is Christian truth to us? Christian truth, then, is an obstacle to personal happiness. Each, word, uh, each year, the Oxford Dictionary has a word of the year. In 2016, the word of the year was post-truth, which is defined like this, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. 
2017, Oprah joined the parade in an impassioned speech at the Golden Globes, declaring, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful truth we all have. Uh, with all due respect, Oprah, I do not think that word means what you think it means. What if your truth and my truth collide? We, we can pause real quick. Do we need to update it? It's okay. Can we cancel out of the, this is not on you, it's on, it's on me. Okay, so if you cancel out of it and then refresh it, it should update and uh, we can get back on track with that. This is my fault. Just so we're clear, it's not his fault. All right. Um, while she's working on that, what if, what if your truth and my truth collide? Whose truth wins? To claim that our truth, is com our truth is compatible with somebody else's truth is to do violence to both claims of truth. There can only be one truth. Claiming that the truths of Christianity can coexist with other truth claims as equals is, as Rebe uh, Rebecca McLaughlin says, like claiming that someone can be in two places at one time. It's possible, but you'd have to kill that person first and then dismember the body. Our society is in a downward spiral of redefining truth to fit with their desires. And shockingly, it's not really hidden on the ugly underbelly of our society anymore either. It's out in the open and warmly embraced. Probably most of us have seen the clips of the Grammys last week, particularly that Sam Smith did. Now, I was going to put a picture on screen for us today if you hadn't seen it, but I just couldn't. It was a celebration of self uh, cloaked in satanic sexual imagery. And so I say it's not the underbelly of our society anymore because these kinds of behaviors have always existed. They've always been there. But when it has been exposed to the mainstream, the current has always kind of pushed it back to the shadows, uh, into the margins, even by non-Christians. But now all the movers and shakers in society of our country were, uh, were there at the Grammys. They were applauding and nodding and standing up and celebrating this debauchery in the name of it being Sam's truth. The wife of the President of the United States was there participating in this event. And this is not a political statement about the Bidens at all. It's just to demonstrate and acknowledge that alternative ideas of truth have gone full-on mainstream, which means that our faith increasingly is being pushed to the margins. I'm not sharing anything new with you, I'm sure, this morning. You recognize it if you're at home. And I'm not saying it to scare you or to freak you out, just to warn you, to warn us, that they desperately want you believing another truth, their truth. They want truth to be malleable so that they can have what they want. Truth, I do not think that word means what they think it means. So what are we to do about this? Why has this happened, and what is at stake for us as Christians? Natasha Crane answers the why. She says, a lack of robust spiritual training has resulted in featherweight faith, and that faith is being blown away by attacks from our secular culture. Why does their agenda seem to be working? Why does it at least seem on the surface that Christianity is waning? I think we are underprepared. And John wrote this letter, 2 John, to make sure that we are prepared. Maybe better said we are not specifically prepared. Natasha Crane again says this, we take this idea of specific preparation for granted in our everyday lives. If we're going to the beach, we bring a beach ball. If 
we're going out in the rain, we bring an umbrella. If we're going camping, we're not going camping. But if we were going camping, we bring a tent. And if we were aiming to do something highly challenging, we make extra sure that we're prepared. For example, imagine you want, imagine you want to climb Mount Everest. If you don't know and physically prepare for the specific challenges that you'll face, for example, the temperatures, the oxygen level, and the elevation gain, there's no way you'll make it to the top. No one would blindly show up at that mountain having done a few jumping jacks. Yet, most Christians are doing the equivalent of a few jumping jacks at the mountain of their faith development. Simply going to church on Sunday isn't going to cut it. Specifically, she says to parents, we have to stop winging our Christian parenting and start getting in shape to prepare our kids for what's ahead. I actually brought a copy of her book today, and the first person that raises their hand for this can get it. It's called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. All right. I think your kids are grown, but you can give it to your kids who have your grandkids, all right? It's all you. Come grab it afterwards. (laughs) Um, Excellent book. I mean, the price of the, the introduction is worth the price of the book. So very helpful. It's called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side by Natasha Crane. Can't recommend it enough. So the first thing that we're going to have to do to nail, the first thing we're going to have to nail down in this effort right here, says John, is what the truth even is. He talks a lot about truth in this little letter, but he did back in his gospel too, just the gospel of John. And listen, truth, Jesus is the only one who gets to define what that word means. There are no alternatives. Here's how Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I have given them your word, Lord, Father, and the the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here it is. Sanctify them in the truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So truth isn't up for grabs. It isn't relative. Absolute truth is true regardless of how a person feels about it. How can we avoid the potent pull of the world's truth when God's actual truth is marginalized a little bit further every day that we live? What is the grid that we can sort of shove every idea through that we hear and process to make sure that it is aligned with God's truth. Well, that's John's intent in this little letter, to be that grid that we shove all these ideas through to make sure that they align with what God says is true. And so he's attempting to put a a backbone of gospel steel into our hearts this morning. Truth is vitally important to John. He uses the word four times here early on in this short letter. And he actually says that the way that we love each other is in the truth. You can see it there in verse 1. And then look at the end of verse 5. He says, love one another. And then he defines this love in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Do you know what this tells us about love? It tells us that Christian love isn't squishy. It is solid. It has edges and boundaries. And it tells us that the love we share is based on the truth that we share. The love we share is based on the truth that we share. That's what John says in verse 1. He says he loves this church in the truth, by which I don't think he means, I truly love you, church. That's not what he's saying. No, he is drawing lines around what love actually is. Love is constrained by the truth, 
And this truth is what brings us together and protects us from the assault of the world. To quote another famous line from The Princess Bride, true love is what brings us together. Or if I may correct that priest from the movie, true love within the confines of God's truth is what brings us together. John Stott clarifies, we love each other not just because we are temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth which we share. And according to John, this loving truth we share is a powerful protection against deception. So this is our big idea for today. Big idea is something like portable you can take home with you that hopefully sticks with you for at least a couple of hours until kickoff, all right? Here's the big idea. Walking together in true affection provides powerful protection from worldly deception. I got lucky with the rhyming today, okay? So let me, let me tell you where I get that from. Walking together. There, there are three instances of walk here uh, in this short letter. Um, and when I say walking together, it, it's drawn from uh, verse 5 where it says one another. We love one another. Walking together in true, in truth. The word truth is used four times, and then affection, I'm drawing from the word love, which is used four times, and then that protection from worldly deception bit comes from verse 7. Uh, verse 7 gives us the rationale behind walking in true affection. He says, for there are deceivers that we need protection from. So we walk together in true affection, which provides powerful protection from worldly deception. Look at verses 1 and 2. We'll jump in here. It says, to... Uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now that is an interest, uh, interesting and maybe even strange uh, to our ears. The elect lady. I think is a reference to the church that John is writing to. Perhaps it was code language uh, because of the, the times and the church being uh, plagued with uh, violence against them. We don't know that for sure, but it's potentially uh, just code language there. But I think it's a, a reference to the church that John is writing to, not an actual woman or lady. Paul uses similar Im uh, imagery of the church as female when he refers to her as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, maybe you remember. John does the same thing in Revelation 21, and Peter closes his letter by saying, she, referring to the church that he's writing from, he says, she sends you her greetings. So this is not a new concept in the New Testament. I think it's definitely a metaphorical reference for, uh, of greeting to the church that he is writing to. All of the familial family type language that follows in this letter um, is, is similar. The references to children are the members of the church. Uh, the, the elect sister down there in verse 13, code language again for a sister church uh, of the one to whom John is writing. Okay, so walking together in true affection provides powerful protection from worldly deception. Where are we going to walk together? What path are we going to walk down in such a way that we will be protected. First today, together, keep walking the old road with Jesus. Keep walking the old road with Jesus. Look at verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning. You know, Andrew Peterson, one of my favorite authors and songwriters, he has this great song that he wrote for his son when his son was turning 13. Uh, it's called, You'll Find Your Way. And it's a metaphor about the day that he anticipates that his son will feel lost and abandoned and ridden with guilt, probably tempted to abandon his faith in Jesus. 
And he tells them how he will find his way early on in the song. He says this. He says, keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads and you'll find your way. But then almost like throughout the song, almost like he suspects that a 13-year-old is going to test him on that. Keeping to the old roads. He knows that his son is probably prone to wander off. And so he sings at the very end of the song. If you've left those old roads, go back. Go back to the ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mast. And hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken hold of you. And you'll find your way. The old roads lead to an open door. And you'll find your way back home. This is my job as a pastor. To myself, keep to the old roads. And then to steer us on the old roads. Not to bring you a new commandment, like verse 5 says, but the one that we have had from the beginning. So when John is drawing up a map for his people um, to the right paths to walk, to stay faithful, he points them to some well-worn paths to keep walking down, the old roads. The protection he offered wasn't some kind of new self-help method, not some new discovery, not some new notion of truth. No, it was the old stuff, the old roads. John here wasn't concerned with whether or not the ancient truth he wrote was offensive or not. That didn't factor into his writing at all. He was concerned about truth. He would rather offend his readers into heaven than to flatter them into hell. Doctrine mattered deeply to John, and it should matter deeply to us as Christians. At Trinity, we'd rather be divided by truth than united by error. Divided by truth is greater than being unified by error. It may not initially feel as loving, and I get that. It may not feel as welcoming to act in this way, but in the end, it is the most loving thing we can do for any human being ever. Hold to the truth of this book, or what John calls it there in verse 6, that which we have heard from the beginning. John is telling us, that we have enough revelation in what was heard from the beginning. He doesn't want to send us off in a pursuit of something new, but rather something old. In other words, we don't need any new revelation, and none is coming. What we need now, and what we will always need, is the original apostolic teaching about the incarnation, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. Keep walking together in that, is the point of this letter. And let's try to dispense of the notion that we need to be embarrassed by this. I think we're all tempted to this, especially in our present day society. But no, we have the truth. We have the hope. We have the victory in Jesus that overcomes the world. Don't forget that. And whether or not they look like it, people are desperate for good news. One pastor, his name is John Tyson, says, and I know I've read this before, But John repeats himself like crazy in his letters, so I have license to sometimes, too. And just like Andrew Peterson, I'm trying to lash our hearts to the ancient mast. He says, John Tyson says, people are desperate. The secular story cannot meet the longings of the human heart. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The very thing that you are ashamed of as a Christian is the very thing someone is preaching. So listen, when... When Rebecca McLaughlin says something like this, let's not be bashful, but bold. Let's not be blushing, but boldly proclaiming. Like it is the truth that it really is. She says, 
Jesus claims to rule over all of heaven and earth. He presents himself not as the one possible path to God, but as God himself. We may choose to disbelieve him, but he cannot be one truth among many. He has not left us that option. There is nothing to be ashamed of here, church. It's the truth. The old roads are paved with the stones of truth. But the command is to walk on them together, on these pavers of truth, in love. Look at verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, or we walk according to his truth. Because the, and, and what, it, what, what is the rationale behind this according to John here? Why stick to the old roads instead of exploring new paths? Because the road out ahead of Jesus and his teaching are fraught with eternal danger and deceit. Look at verse 7. Stick to the old roads for, here it is, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. So in verse 8, he says, watch yourselves. Watch it. Be wary. Number two, together, keep wary of those running ahead of Jesus. Number one, together, keep walking on the old roads with Jesus. Number two, together, let's keep wary of those running ahead of Jesus on those roads. Do you see what these antichrists were doing? Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide or stay with the teaching of Jesus does not have God. Going ahead in the faith isn't progress in the faith. It's progress beyond the faith. They were running ahead of what they had heard from the beginning. They thought of themselves as progressive. But they had run so far ahead of Jesus' teaching that they had left God behind them. These kinds of people are super dangerous, and here's why. They still call themselves Christians, but they've unhitched themselves from Christ. And it's sometimes really difficult to see that. We should be wary of anyone who tries to improve the teachings of Jesus or to go on ahead of the teachings of Jesus. And you can find a lot of people that will agree with the Bible as long as it aligns with what they already personally believe. They like those parts of the Bible. But the moment it diverges from their beliefs, they divert from it. Others want God without Jesus. Jesus is definitive for our age. I think Jesus is clear, clearly troubling to our still kind of religious society. There are still vestiges of religion and spirituality here. Even still, especially in the South, prayers are prayed before sporting events or in other public settings. But somewhere deep in the recesses of that arena or that stadium, someone instructs the person who is going to publicly pray for the event to keep that prayer really benign. Talking about God is fine at your NASCAR race, but referring to Jesus is not. Jesus is the dividing line of our age. Jesus is definitive on our day, and we must not lose the doctrine of his divinity or of his humanity. Let's not surrender this to our culture. Let's stay warm by the fires of its truth. Jesus Christ is God of God, and he is the one way to God. The implications of Jesus' divinity are pretty staggering. Only an infinite and sinless person could take on the infinite punishment that our sins deserve. If Jesus is not God, he cannot save. 
John says, beware of people who run out ahead of what Jesus taught about himself. He calls the people who leave the faith for the world antichrist. And we covered this a little bit back in 1 John chapter 2. So if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, I'm not going to repeat all that stuff today. If you're coming in today dying to know who the antichrist was, what his social security number is and his zip code, I'm sorry, I'm not going to cover that. We covered that back in 1 John 2. I still didn't know his zip code back then either. But the most sobering thing I think about antichrist is that looks can be deceiving. In 1 John 2, John describes them like this. He says, they went out from us, but were not of us. So these were people in the church. They looked like you. They looked like me. They were us. They looked like us. They sung like us. They attended like us, probably went to a C group like us. I think most of us would probably affirm that what happened on the Grammy stage the other night was egregious, inappropriate. But where we might be tempted to get a little hung up, I think, is the people who claim to love Jesus, but have diverted from Jesus. G.K. Chesterton once said, I strongly object to wrong arguments on the right side. I think I object to them more than to wrong arguments on the wrong side. People who claim to be on the right side of Jesus, but make wrong arguments about Jesus, are genuinely dangerous to Jesus' people. They say things like, to love God is to love yourself above all else and to give yourself all that you want. Peak yourself, right? To love God is to become unshackled by anything that holds you back from becoming the real you. A lot of what they say sounds so smooth and compelling. I think more than anything, this is the kind of person that John is warning us about. The heart of all false teaching is a defective view of Jesus, and particularly that he is all authoritative. This is why we need to be walking together in true affection, to provide powerful protection from subtle deception that comes at us from people that sometimes appear to be Christians but have unhitched themselves from the whole of Jesus' teaching. This true affection that provides protection is evidenced in some of the actions that we talked about last week, like really boots on the ground, good Christian fellowship and friendship. Number one, one of the things we encouraged was to graciously intrude into other Christians' lives to do them deliberate spiritual good. And then when others take, take, take me up on this and take this instruction to heart, you can help them obey by humbly accepting these gracious intrusions from other Christians. This is what life together should be like. Uh, on, the, on the Monday to Saturday with us. Our friendships should feature this a lot. Humble intrusions and humble reception. Our mutual Christian affection is evidenced with these sorts of actions. And these sorts of actions will help us make it to the end, still believing, still holding to Jesus. Jesus was fully, hum fully human and fully God. To believe anything less, John says, is to align yourself with Antichrist. John Piper, who's a or was a pastor in Minnesota for many years, he calls this reality that Jesus is both God and man one of the primary stumbling blocks to true faith for many. I wonder if it has been a stumbling block for you too. If the doctrine of Jesus being fully God and fully man is true, then, Piper says, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And his work and word claim a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. 
We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says that we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man, the man Christ Jesus, becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the religious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian. Imperialism. Absolutism. Who does he think he is? I'll tell you who you think he is. God. Truth means what he says it means. Reject the truth of this Jewish God-man to the peril of your own soul. Now this sounds like a threat. And it kind of is. To some degree. But it's also an invitation to a well of joy beyond comparison. Complete joy that will satisfy your soul so much that your soul will say, ah, yes, that's what I want. That's what I need. Come to Jesus and enjoy that satisfaction. So John is very concerned that we be on high alert to lies about Jesus' true identity and Jesus' demands over your life. And do you see what's at stake here? Verse 8 says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. What is it that we have worked for? It's not something that we have worked for here in this life, I can assure you of that. Friend, you are certainly going to lose everything in this life. Everything in your life that you can see and touch and hold and taste, it's all going to be gone. And what are you going to be left with? Don't leave Jesus for a little bit of pleasure and acceptance now and lose the reward of seeing and enjoying him forever. Stick to the old roads. You will lose this world. As you live and breathe your last, make sure you are holding on to something that is out of this world. The judgment on the line is clear. Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have If you take Jesus as your Savior, then you get God as your Father. But if you leave Jesus, you lose the Father. You lose access to God. The two come hand in hand. Stick to the old roads and walk on them together with affection. What does this watching look like that John references there in verse 8? I think it means at least two things. Watching means looking out for each other in the church and then looking out of the church for each other. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let's consider looking out for each other in the church first. The author of Hebrews has a helpful word here. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelieving of what? Well, John would say, verse 5, that which you have heard from the beginning. Some of those people in John's church had failed to take this warning seriously. I hope you won't. There's a real danger for each of us, me and you, to fall into a rut of looking the part without actually being the part of a Christian. The author of Hebrews continues, and he employs the same sorts of urgency that John does in his letter. He gives us a tool to avoid falling into the trap that these antichrists did in John's church. He goes on to say this, 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And listen to this urgency. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. Don't wait. Don't think you have more time because you might not have more time. It's the last hour, John says in his letter. Or it might be your last hour. None of us know. So watching means looking out for each other in the church, and then it means looking out of the church for each other. So John provides a really surprising application as he closes his letter here in verses 10 and 11. And he has us looking out of the church for potential threats slipping into the church. (laughs) On the surface, I don't know if you felt this way uh, when Jen read this for us a few minutes ago, but it feels off-putting at first. It kind of sounds really cold. Um, Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes a part in his wicked deeds. You don't want me to say hello to somebody who doesn't believe what I believe? That sounds harsh and cold. This is curious, isn't it? After all, the scriptures are full of commands for us to love Christians and non-Christians alike and to show them hospitality. I think we can make sense of these two verses if we read carefully and if we consider the context carefully. John, John's warning is not aimed at those who merely believe a false doctrine, but those who teach a false doctrine. See that phrase there in verse 10? It's those who are bringing this teaching. Then again in verse, uh, in verse 10 again, that you that you see there, it's plural. It's not a singular. If anyone comes to you, is the plural you, not just a singular person you, but comes to you as the church. So it's not a reference to a personal visit between one person and another person, the false teacher. Rather, it is a reference to a false teacher promoting his teaching in a church gathering. Think like from this place right here in our modern day context. And then when John says, don't receive him into your house, we have to remember that the, the locations where churches were gathered during this time, they gathered in homes, in houses. So John is not forbidding private hospitality toward these false teachers. He is forbidding welcoming false teachers into the pulpit to promote their false and deadly doctrine. So this pulpit is a sacred place, uh, not because I'm here, because this is here. The word of God, and the word of God is we're behind This is a sacred place. We will not lag behind him. We will not run ahead of him. We will walk with him. And by God's grace, we will not allow anyone who lags behind or runs ahead, anyone who says less than Jesus or more than Jesus on any given subject, no one like that will occupy this place in this church. This last week, I read a portion of a sermon that was written way back in the 1700s. It was a sermon delivered by an African-American Puritan preacher named Lemuel Haynes. And it doesn't so much apply to you as it does to me. But I guess I just want you to know that each week, I too am under the microscope of God's word. I'm trying to read it for what it says and go wherever Jesus calls. It changes and sanctifies and corrects me every single week, as I hope it does for you too. Here's what our brother Lemuel said almost 300 years ago. He says, A minister who watches for souls as one who expects to give an account will have none to plead with God. When he studies his sermons, this will not be the inquiry, how shall I form my discourse so as to please and gratify the humors of men and get their applause? But how shall I preach so as to do honor to God? 
This will be his daily request at the throne of grace. This will be 10,000 times better to him than the vain flattery of men. His disclosures, discourses, will not be calculated to gratify the carnal heart, and he will not shun to declare the whole counsel of God. The solemn account that the faithful minister expects to give on the last day, on another day, will direct him in the choice of his subject. He will dwell upon those things that have a more direct relation to the eternal world. He will not entertain his audience with empty speculations or vain philosophy, but with things that concern their everlasting welfare. Jesus Christ, in him crucified, will be the great topic and darling theme of his preaching. If he means to save souls like a skillful physician, he will endeavor to lead his patients into a view of their maladies and then point them to a bleeding Savior as the only way of recovery. The faithful watchman will give the alarm at the approach of the enemy, will blow the trumpet in the ears of the sleeping sinner and endeavor to awake them. This pulpit is not for personal opinions. The only reason I preach is because his commands are my concerns, and they ought to be yours too. His commands, your concerns. I've got a magnet up here. You guys never see it unless you've been up here before. Um, I'm terribly in the face every week. Uh, it's a quote by Charles Spurgeon. It says, Others may preach as they wish, but as for this pulpit, it will always resound with the substitution of Christ. And that is our rallying cry here at Trinity for sure. Uh, a couple of concluding observations and applications, and I'll let us go. First, holding firmly to truth doesn't give us license to be jerks, all right? I once read, it's often said that you should respect other people's beliefs, but that's wrong. What's vital is that you should respect other people. In other words, contend with false beliefs. It's okay to do that. We should do that. If we love others, we will do that. But do it graciously and respectfully, honorably. We should treat our world with compassion. But man, do they need God's truth over and above the feeling of our suffering. The second, holding firmly to truth doesn't give us license to be silent either. At the same time, our love for others must never undermine our loyalty to truth. Love for others must never undermine loyalty to truth. It's not on us as Christians to make sure that other people feel loved at the expense of truth. It's on us to actually love them with the truth, even if it costs us social cachet or worse. Jesus was never about making people feel good at the expense of their souls. The old roads are safe for us. They're safe because that's where Jesus walked. So together, let's walk the old roads with Jesus. Together, in true affection that provides powerful protection from worldly deception. And if you've strayed from the old world of late, I'll close with the final lines of Andrew Peterson's song again. If you have strayed, go back. Go back to the ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mass. This is the ancient mass. And hold on, boy or girl, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken hold of you, and you'll find your way. The old roads lead to an open door, the open door, Jesus, and you'll find your way back home. Will you pray with us this morning? Will is going to come up and pray these truths into our bones this morning.
Let's go before the throne of grace. Father, I thank you that because of the work of Jesus and his substitutionary work that we can come boldly before your throne of grace because of the work that he has done. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming here and opening your word for us today. Father, I thank you for your word that you have given us that leads us into all truth. Father, I pray that your spirit would protect us from the evil one who would desire other truth. I pray, Father, that you would protect us through your spirit from this world that brings alternate truth. And I also pray, Lord, that you would protect us from our own flesh that tends to want to lean toward those things that are not really truth. But that the truth of your word would be exalted in our hearts and that we would walk in that truth loving each other as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you this morning are limping down the old road,